So what is it they call uh, 916? Um, what is it they call? It's the it's the it's a sign of the uh, the looming apocalypse. You know, cats uh-huh. and dogs sleeping together, uh, um, flocks of birds flying into the ground. All right. Mm-hmm. Someone someone crossed the streams. <laughs> Something like call, that. Yeah. So we, Jeb, we call it controlled foul into terrain. <laughs> yeah, sea fit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what it is here. It, oh yeah, sea fit. It's always sea fit. Crazed yeah. foul into terrain. Yeah, all right. <laughs> no, but this is really a story, right, Jeb? You found this, right? What's the story? Yeah, well, I, I was uh, someone on the DC pilots list uh, floated a pointer yesterday, and I looked at this, and and um, um, you know. All right, let's just stop this right here, all right? Uh, Hi, this is Jack, and I'm talking to you now from about an hour or so after we finished recording this episode. And I I need to warn you that we're about to launch into an eight-plus-minute conversation about something that has absolutely nothing to do with general aviation. And I just wanted to apologize. Uh, I don't know what came over us. Maybe it was because it was 9 o'clock in the morning and we weren't sufficiently caffeinated or something like that, but we did. And we had fun doing it, but I'm not sure how much fun it's going to be for you. So what I recommend is that you just right now jump ahead to about the uh, nine and a half minute mark in this podcast. And by then we're nearly done with this insanity and we move on to real aviation things. Uh, Otherwise, you've been warned. And so now I'm going to return you to our regularly scheduled podcast. You got a flock of birds. These are called grebes, and I'm, I'm led to believe, told that they are diving birds. They like to dive into water. Ah, that's and, the missing piece uh, of the puzzle. That's All right, go the, ahead. That's, yeah. that's part of the missing puzzle. But the lead graph from this okay. story, this is this is Dateline, St. George, Utah. This image uh, just got way more colorful. Go ahead, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Thousands, thousands of migratory birds were killed or injured after apparently mistaking a Walmart parking lot football fields and other snow-covered areas of southern Utah for bodies of water and plummeting to the ground in what one state wildlife expert called the worst mass bird crash she'd ever seen. <laughs> and, and she knows what she's um, talking about because she's our, seen our all kinds fine, of and, mass bird crashes, I take it, huh? Exactly. She, she, is, she is Utah's Bird crash accident investigator par excellence. Okay, this is a job for the MBSB. Yeah. That's right. What's National right. Bird Safety Board? Uh huh. The NTA. Yeah. Okay. Yes, there should be. You're right. So, this is pretty um, weird, though. This is it's pretty, pretty weird. It's it's pretty weird. What's even weirder, I think, is uh, that this got I you know a long story in the AP. Mm-hmm. I, I was trying to come up with a Walmart joke. Well, I think I think it pretty much it pretty much you know makes its it own stands joke. on its own. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this yeah. was wasn't this a story like a couple of years ago? Now we're way a field of general aviation here, but uh, you know there were a lot of mass bird deaths over the last couple of years, and everybody was all concerned that it was like you know related to climate change or something like that. And then and then there were stories that said, no, no, come on, you know it's just like getting reported more than before. This kind of thing happens from time to time, but. Uh, but now, now we've got the, the birds. So, was there any any proposed explanation as to why these birds are mistaking? And is it just Utah, or is it just Utah officials that care about the birds enough to? Uh... It could be a combination of things. Uh-huh. The story goes on to note that there have been other uh, mass crashes, yeah. <laughs> mass, <laughs> mass mishaps, shall uh-huh. we say? Yeah, involving involving flocks of birds over the last couple of years. It doesn't really speculate on causes except to say that. 
you know, these grebes, for example, according to an ornithologist uh, at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, who was quoted in the story, said he said grebes rely on starlight to navigate during their nighttime migration. Says before there were artificial lights, the sky was always paler than the ground. When all of a sudden there's light all over the place, they don't know which way is up anymore. Uh, I, I, okay, I can see that, but you know maybe they should get a you know a backup uh, um, um, gyro system of some I kind. I know, right? You know, uh, carry a couple of cats with toast strapped to their back or something. You know, well, there's that, and and yeah, I think that would be. Uh, I don't know how the cat and the bird would get along. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you got enough <laughs> birds; it's not up to the cat anymore. That's right. Um, that's right. So uh, yeah, no. See, when I first read this, I was thinking, okay, you know, I've seen birds land on water before, and although they accidentally landed on hard ground when they thought they were landing on water, it would be it would be you know annoying, but it probably wouldn't be thousands of them wouldn't die, I wouldn't think. But it's the well, diving part. <laughs> if they thought they were diving nose first, you know, beak first into the yeah, water. Yeah, we we uh, we live on this little U-shaped peninsula land surrounded by the little Arkansas River here uh, near our house in Wichita. We've got a lot of migratory waterfowl through here this time of year. And sometimes you'll see them hop from one part of the river to another or a bunch of them coming in cross country. Uh, you know, uh, Canada geese, uh, different kinds of ducks, uh, they don't generally dive into the water. But we actually had a flock of grebes here about three weeks ago. As I'd never seen them before here, and I asked one of the local bird watchers, because we're a mecca for those guys, as whenever I'd see them, it, they'd get startled, they'd disappear under the water, and then they'd pop up like 200 feet away. And I was like, wow, the yeah. other birds don't do that. And he goes, oh, yeah, you ought to watch them when they come in. They come in over the water, then they just kind of nose over and die. Mm -hmm. Well, there you mm -hmm. go. There you go. And yeah. a, a couple of days later, I saw four or five of them do that. And I thought, that'd be a real bitch if it was frozen. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, tell you know, next time you're out there, tell your birdwatcher friends that they ought to go hang out at the Walmart parking lot. You know, yeah, well, it's in right. San George, Utah. Yeah, Bring a net. Right. I know, huh? and and you know this the swimming bird thing. Just to tell a story here, you know about the lake and whatnot in the backyard. I'm sitting out there one day, minding you know sitting sitting on the pool deck, minding my own business. But of course, but of course, and I look out, and for all the world, I'm convinced I have a Loch Ness monster in my leg. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> because there's this there's this long skinny neck sticking up. And I'm we're talking at least a foot and a half above the water. I mean uh -huh. it was that that big. And a head and the thing's bop, 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 bopping through the water. <laughs> yeah. You know, minding its own business. And I'm I'm just totally freaked out, you know, for about thirty seconds. What is this? And I'm, you know, you know, grabbing my my iPad and I'm googling Loch Ness monster escapes and you know things like this. And and um, the thing and it swim, flies. And it, things swim. Whatever this was at the time, I figured out what it is. Since swims basically halfway across the lake and gets to the shore and hops out. And it's a fucking bird. Yep. Yeah. And it was it was a cormorant, and it yeah. hops up and and spreads its wings and starts to dry out, and I'm like, thank God, you know, it's got kind of a simple explanation. See? I thought I was going to have have to call in an airstrike or something, you know. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> see, see, this is like Florida is a whole different world. You have you have an alligator in your in your pond, but that doesn't bother you. Right? But well, the that, fact that there might be. Yeah, so, I saw some research recently that I didn't tag, probably should have, about uh, using 
flashing lights on airplanes to help avoid bird strikes. Uh-huh. And I was thinking maybe they should put those on ponds. The flashing lights, but apparently it gets the birds' attentions and they, they will kind of go, wow, Whiskey Tangle Foxtrot, what's that? I don't want to go there. And they'll steer off to the other side. Oh, Except, so it of course, works, the ones that are fond of Airbuses. Yeah. Because I, I was start, um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, right. The, uh, so... Uh, Oh, see, I've lost my train of thought here now. I, we're gonna, I'm going to have to move this whole section to the end of the podcast because we aren't talking about general aviation. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I was talking to a cop one time who said that, uh, you, you know, so when cops pull people over and now the cop car is parked by the side of the road, and apparently there's a controversy or there's some question in the cop world about whether or not you leave the lights on in the cop car, you know, the taillights. Because uh, they're concerned that if the car is stopped by the side of the road with its taillights on, the next drunk who's driving down the road will just think it's a moving car, all right, and will just just stay right behind that stationary cop car until they make contact. And so that has been known to happen. Yeah. Yes, and happened. so apparently there's this big thing, or on a little thing, there's a thing among the cops that uh, do you leave your lights on? Do you turn your lights off? Do you have the blue lights flashing, or whatever color the cop yeah, lights are in say, your state, or? Around yeah. here, they tend to leave the 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 bar on. Yeah, uh, you know, or, or if yeah. they've got them hidden in the back window, that keep those flashing things. But, yeah. All right. Uh, okay, maybe this is an aviation story. Jeb, you're jealous of the journalistic opportunity that you missed here by not being able to write this headline. All right. This is what yes. Is yes. This is NTSB. Uh, I don't know which type of report it is, but they published one of their reports about a plane up uh, a crash up in. Uh, at, uh, near Kodiak State Airport in Alaska. And uh, mm. the aspect of the report that tickled you was? The headline. Th- which the headline was? reads, Missing Nut Caused Plane Crash. <laughs> yeah. And first my ever, reaction, right? yeah. yeah, my first time ever, my reaction, of course, is, well, you know, there's you know, a lot of times there's uh, a missing nut involved with just about every plane crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes sometimes the pilot gets away. Sometimes yeah. he doesn't. You know, you know, or there's a screw loose, right? Or, yeah, right. right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so, and it's uh, not exactly as if we were missing the nut. Yeah, I you're, you're, you're analyzing well, this too much, David. <laughs> 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 yeah, what, right. uh, uh, Jeb, what, what crash is this? Is it an interesting crash? Is this notable? Did we not, ever talk I, about this crash? Not that I know of. This is uh, a Piper Saratoga that went down uh, in shallow water, um, apparently just off Kodiak, Alaska. Kodiak's uh, an island. Uh, out in the uh, I don't know out of the Pacific or the uh, the uh, Alaskan uh, Bay or uh, Gulf or whatever, but uh, um, said uh, an examination found that the throttle cable had become disconnected from the throttle linkage arm due to a missing self-locking nut. The mechanic mm-hmm. said should have the mechanic who happened to be along for the ride uh, uh, said um, he should have checked the security of the self-locking nut, but didn't. Bet that's a nut that won't miss that nut again. That's right. Uh, um, he'll 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 go. He'll try for that nut again. Yeah, I know. Um, so they came out okay. They, they, so everybody swam away. But, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure yeah, out here. <clears throat> Even the birds. Yeah, actually, able, it says they were able to wade to shore. Wade so. to shore, right? Yeah. So I, I think another factor in this in this crash was that they they actually thought they were landing in a Walmart parking lot and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 265 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Clear. 
little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We got Skyriders now. We got Skyriders. We got Skyriders now. Skyriders they, now. They, does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on site, clear land. Turkey Central Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday morning, December 15th, 2011, so we're all a little groggy here. We've got our coffee, but uh, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just unexpectedly early for me anyways, and it shouldn't be, but I'll explain why it is. Uh, Who called this me? Yeah, I know. Whose idea was this? So uh, it's the uh, it's the 15th of December, and uh, uh, it's the, the Ides of December. Today's the day that the... Uh, the, the survey ends up. We've been uh, the uh, the listener survey will be done by the time people listen to this and start collecting the the uh, results, which are very very interesting. I've been skimming them as they go by, and uh, some good stuff there. Anyways, my friends are here with me in the hangar. Uh, Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Good morning, David. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm I'm having a wonderful morning and have made a personal commitment to not dive into anything today. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you were we'll, we'll, we'll ease into the water. So you were telling me that you're already on your second pot of coffee? My goodness, you are an early riser, huh? Well, uh, you know, this time of year, sometimes you uh, need to shoot a little starting fluid down the throat of the carburetor. Oh, I, yeah. And caffeine has that, plays that role for yeah. me. Yeah. Fire in a can, man. Fire in a can. Uh, and also out there is uh, Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you this morning? I'm well. Not quite fully caffeinated, but, oh, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's touch and go right now. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you this week from the UCAP Winter HQ on the slopes of majestic Garrison Hill in Dover, New Hampshire. I'm back in Dover for the winter, and... Uh, uh, Using uh, living in the something sp- wrong, Jack. Uh, when when you're when you decide to winter in New Hampshire, uh, <laughs> the, 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 this is this comes in under the heading of unfamiliar with the concept. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, no, I just decided not to uh, spend another winter at uh, at Lookout Point, which is uh, not truly winterized. It's a little bit more roughing it than I wanted to do again this year. So. Uh, so uh, the uh, the uh, f- family friend, uh, the lovely Brittany, uh, had a spare room, so I'm I'm staying in in her place for the for the winter till May. You, oh, you mean you have you you you're living someplace with a furnace? I am, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, it's and nice insulation. and warm. It's nice and warm, and and you know you you don't hold up your, you don't hold your hand up to the window and feel wind coming in. You know, um, it's not drafty, and it's nice and warm, and uh, you know, and there's company. It's not you know I'm not alone all the time. That's kind of nice too. So, anyways, um, my thanks to the lovely Brittany for for taking me in. And thank, uh, thank you, the lovely Brittany. Yeah. Uh, what's going on here? Let's see now. Uh, I've lost place here. Let's. What's next on the list? Is there anything good on the list here this week? Oh, you know, talking about. Uh, so when you mentioned the story about the birds flying into the, you know, control flight into terrain and stuff, um, we got a, a, a posting from a listener um, in the forums. Let's see if I can bring it up on my screen here. CO Flyer. CO Flyer. Uh, we met actually. I think wasn't he one of the guys who came out to uh, the meetup we had at the the steak place there when we were out in Wichita. Couple oh, of years ago. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Hanger one. 
C.O. Flyer was either one of the guys who was there, or he may have been the guy from Denver who kept saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, and didn't quite make it. Um, we were all amazed that he was going to come all the way from Denver to, to Wichita. Well, Bob's his name, so hi, Bob. Yeah. In any event, C.O. Flyer in the forums um, says, uh, UCAP gang talked about uh, modifications mods to the D.C. area CIFRA. I'd be interested in their comments on the airspace around Phoenix with re- respect to the tragic twin commander crash into Superstition Mountain east of Phoenix on November 18th. Um, the floor of the Class Bravo after an FAA modification for commercial air traffic in 2006 is 5,000 MSL to within a few miles of the 5,000-foot mountains. Not a good mix, Co-Flyer writes. And, uh, yeah, I, just so, finished a pe- I just finished a piece talking specifically about CFIT accidents and the relationship between CFIT accidents and pilots' attempts to save time or work around not getting a, a Bravo clearance mm. and how that sometimes turns out badly. Uh, this being my leading example since it was the most current. Yeah. So, And what, what did you discover in the process of this research? Well, first off, Bob's right. The, the, the FAA did recently, and not without a lot of argument uh, against it, lower the floor of the Bravo uh, east of Phoenix so that at the bottom of it's now 5,000 MSL. Uh, the, the, the folks on the uh, Turbo Commander, uh, they were returning to uh, uh, the, the, the home field of the guy and his partner who owned the airplane. They'd been there picking up the children of one of the owners of the airplane uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, they launched, I should probably call up the story, they launched, they headed east. It was going to be a 45-minute flight. They punched in direct, and direct took them right to within 100 feet or so of the top of the Superstition Mountain. Uh, They stopped their climb at 4,500 MSL. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd been told to steer clear. You know, they they were talking. They'd been told to stay clear of the Bravo. They did. uh, But rather than dogleg, and this is the thing that was kind of tragic in my mind, uh, the the, the nice guy that was picking up his kids for Thanksgiving – uh, he made that trip fairly frequently, mm-hmm. fairly familiar with the area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we should point out that it was night when this was all happening. It was night, and there is video on it. I'm yeah. not sure I can. I, I saw that video. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's not and you know, it's not very close up. It's a long. If it's the one I'm thinking of, the one I saw. Um, it's it's quite a far ways away. Um, it's some sort of webcam, and you can just see the point of light of the aircraft uh, moving left to right. right. You watch the yeah. You watch the strobe blink on a steady, unwavering, at steady altitude, steady heading, uh, coming in from the left side of the frame, moving to the right, and before it gets quite to the center of the frame, it disappears behind something. That would be the mountain, and then a split second later, there's a huge fireball from the explosion. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, it's pretty graphic. If you were seeing it on TV, you'd yeah. go, "Wow!" They usually get better quality video, but this is real. Yeah, uh, and that was the loss of six lives. Yeah, yeah. So very sobering to watch. Is this but, a thing, or was that an isolated incident with the Phoenix? You know, perhaps well, making the airspace confusing. 
Oh, the, the airspace being made confusing by changes uh, from uh, from our friends at the FA. Uh, that's not all that unusual. Uh-huh. No, it's not. Yeah, it, Jeb, what's your it, take on it's this? Always this fight to simplify it. It doesn't always work. Yeah, yeah. My 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 take is is pretty much that. Um, <clears throat> as I recall, this the airspace around Phoenix, the Bravo around Phoenix, was reconfigured uh, a few years back, maybe '06. And uh, at the time, um, various people, various organizations pointed out that um, you know this was a potential um, um, problem to have the floor of the Bravo so close to the tops of these this mountain range. Um, and um, apparently, you know, ALPA is on record uh, from that time frame uh, that this is a problem waiting to happen. And of course, it took five years for it to happen. Um, the, the overall issue, though, is is um, you know the same issue that GA has been fighting for you know years slash decades, which is you know this airspace is is being carved up for the benefit of the airlines, um, and um, GA is taking you know a, a back seat to some of this. Um, now, clearly, especially since this pilot apparently had a lot of local knowledge. Um, clearly, you know, you could say, you know, you point this at, at pilot error, but you, you also have to consider in, in, in looking at the accident cause here, you have to consider, uh, the airspace configuration and the topography, uh, and when you, when you figure a, a, a problem. So clearly, um, I think the pilot is, is certainly at fault. Clearly though, the, uh, the FAA and, and the, uh, the airspace design itself is also at fault, but there's another, you know, longer range, you know, on thirty thousand feet thing kind of going on here, and that is um, this airspace is supposed to be configured for uh, tra- jet transports. Okay, the the idea of the whole idea of a Bravo of Bravo airspace is to provide an environment where. Um, the higher speed aircraft uh, landing and departing at this at the major airport around which the Bravo is configured uh, have a a somewhat somewhat more sterilized area in which to operate. Uh, they don't have to worry too much about you know guys bouncing around in, in champs right off the end of the runway. Okay, that's fine. I get that, and and there's certainly a, a safety uh, reason, a safety cause, a safety justification for all. Um, as we modernize avionics, as we modernize the air traffic control system, and specifically as we uh, prepare for um, next-gen Knockwood, one of the, the benefits being touted uh, by the FAA and, and by avionics manufacturers um, is the ability to do what I would call a steeper approach. Some would call it a slam dunk. Some would call it uh, just a, a, um, an optimized type of approach to a runway. But the punchline is that uh, airline operators, transport operators, are going to want to, uh, I should say, are, are going to expect to be able to um, manage their descents uh, to the runway in, in, in a minimal power mode. In other words, they'll pull the power back and let gravity do a lot of the work. They'll save fuel. They'll save time, et cetera, et cetera. The idea being that there will be steeper approaches uh, at least steeper transitions. The the approach itself might not be uh, um, right. steeper. Um, if we're going to do that, and and there's an airspace redesign effort starting up in in the D.C. area, 
And if we're going to be doing that, then uh, shouldn't we also be thinking about how to raise some of the Class Bravo floors around the country so that things like this don't happen anymore? Yeah. So what you're suggesting is that the new technology might make it possible for these, the, the, the Bravos and the Charlies to become smaller? That's what, you know, if, if you look at some of the, the rationale and, and economic justifications being, being espoused, being touted for next gen, this is one of them, that um, uh, transports, so, you know, suitably equipped transports can avail themselves of steeper power-off approaches and use less fuel in the process. That, in turn, would seem to translate to perhaps, you know, just the average disinterested observer into a, re- a, a, a how should I put this, um, a lessened need, a reduced need for mm-hmm. all of this protected airspace. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's the case, then uh, can't we start, you know, opening up some of this Bravo, especially where the geographic features, uh, whether it's water, whether it's mountains, whether it's um, other uh, airspace, whether it's other airports, would tend to compress general aviation operations into uh, a tight piece of airspace which raises the conflict, or raises the possibility, I should say, of, of traffic conflicts, uh, CFIT accidents like this one, um, and, and other issues that can crop up from time to time over uh, uh, various, uh, various areas of the country. So uh, this clearly should serve, I think, as, as something of a wake-up call for the FAA, but I'm pretty sure it won't. Well, and I, I agree with Jeb. There's airspace redesign stuff. Uh, far too often GA is... Uh, is the afterthought. Uh, I mean, originally, what they call terminal control areas were designed so that the heavy traffic would enter through the top and descend to their 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 airport entirely within the confines of the TCA. Uh, but then that went away pretty quickly because then they didn't want to do that circling stuff. Uh, MLS didn't come around, which was supposed to make it possible, uh, and. Outfits are already using these flight idle descent profiles uh, with speed management. For right. example, uh, UPS has been using it going into its hub in Louisville, Kentucky for a couple of years uh, with ADSB providing a link not only for the controllers but also feeding with some special software speed information from one aircraft to the next helping the pilot manage the speed, which in this case, since it's flight idle on the engine power, is a pitch thing. Uh, you need to go five knots faster, you need to go five knots slower. The idea being that they cut power up around Indianapolis and do a constant descent to the final approach fix about 10 miles, or the initial approach fix about 10 miles out on the final approach. That, you know, saves them tons of fuel. Uh, Yeah, that's all well and good. Let's remember that there's other people out there playing. Uh, But to flip this over, this was a night... VMC accident in terrain familiar to the crew between two airports that they regularly transited between uh, St- Safford Regional in, in Safford, Arizona and uh, uh, Falcon Field in Mesa. Uh, for the Turbo Commander, that's a, you know, a, a, a Honeywell turboprop-powered twin. It was about a 45-minute flight. Dog-legging around that mountain which would have been seemingly the logical thing to do if you were going to do it at 4,500 feet, 
would have maybe added five minutes to that. Uh, that airplane, because it was in a 135 and in a twin turbine, should have had a rudimentary terrain uh, avoidance system. But it wasn't the kind that produces the, the, the forward-looking help of more modern systems. So they could have had it and still not known exactly where they were headed to. It would have told them about rising terrain. It wouldn't have said, oh, there's a mountain in front of you, pull up uh, or turn. Uh, and this was one of three accidents that I pr profiled in this piece where night VMC and the crew flew into terrain predominantly right. <laughs> because they either didn't want to wait for a clearance or they'd been denied you know, airspace clearance and were hell-bent for leather to go in the direction that they were going, even with charts and plates and familiarity with, with, with the area. And it kind of comes back to my mind that we've gotten into such a mindset, of, and I'm guilty of this occasionally too, I'll plug in the flight plan and then go looking at it a little bit later and go, yeah, no, I probably don't want to go through blasting through that airspace because it's apt to be hot. Or... You know, there's a lot of towers along that route. Maybe that altitude's not the best thing. Uh, but in all three of these cases, uh, it just went right past the crew that they were headed full bore into a, a, a collision with terrain. And it makes me come back and wonder, how much planning do we do? How much do we do on kind of mental autopilot? Oh, we've flown this before. We'll go up to 5,500 feet. Uh, steer clear of the class. Bravo. Okay, we'll stop here at 4,500. We'll get past the edge of it and then pop up. Uh, no, that didn't work out. So to me, Jeb's correct. Some of this airspace design work is, is completely flawed from a GA pilot's perspective and not at all designed to be helpful or uh, accommodating for us. Uh, at the same time, I think we too often get a little bit too comfortable with our routines and don't fully take into account when something uh, not routine gets thrown into the mix, like not being able to pop up to 5,500 feet long enough to clear Superstition Mountain and then pop back down the other side to, right. to land at Safford. Are, are they uh, making we any guesses? Think about these things. Yeah. Are they making any guesses, David, at this point of what was in the pilot's mind when he went into Superstition Mountain? What did he think he was doing? Do they? Uh, it, basically, all they've got to go by are the radar tracks and the minimal communication that the uh, the pilot had coming out of uh, uh, Falcon, and that video. And uh, who can put their head inside another pilot's mind? Uh, right. I can't. Uh, but in this case, there was two pilots and a mechanic that landed in Mesa to pick up one of the pilot's children. The two pilots owned the 135 operation that owned the airplane. Uh, the father of the children was left seat when they arrived. He was sitting in the back of the airplane when they departed, according to uh, uh, witnesses at uh, Falcon Field. Uh, the mechanic was sitting right seat, and the other pilot was flying left seat. So one flew in, the other one flew out. Dad and the kids were in the back of the airplane enjoying some get-together with Dad and the kids' time. Uh, the other pilot was flying the aircraft. 
whether they were distracted by conversation, just having such a good time with the advent of the holiday weekend. Uh, I'm not prepared to, to, you know, to try to read into that. But they made this trip in the, in, in the airplane. They had not had all that long. I think they'd had it less than a couple of weeks. But they had made this trip multiple times. Mm-hmm. Because Dad lived over at Safford, and that's where his business was. And Kitty's lived back over near Phoenix, and he picks him up at Mesa. I've flown into Mesa. Uh, going in, I took a dog leg around Superstition Mountain. Yeah. Uh, going out, uh, I decided to take a good look at it and managed to get up a heading that let me climb high enough to clear it before I turned eastbound for Wichita. Uh, Look at that and kind of go, somewhere down there is the Lost Dutchman mine, but I sure don't want to find it with my airplane. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Now, um, some would – I don't know how to put this exactly. We've been characterizing this as a GA versus airlines um, issue. Is it maybe more mm-hmm. accurate to characterize it as a, VF, uh, a VFR versus IFR issue? Well, I, let's let's back up. I'm not sure I sign on to characterizing it as a GA versus airlines issue. Yeah, that's me, that's me, one me that's one facet of it. That's okay. but there's with any accident, especially a CFIT accident, there are other things going on. Uh, so I, the the airspace configuration around Phoenix is certainly one portion of the overall accident cause. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still up to the pilot in command. And he, he's the one who chose the route. He's the one who chose the altitude. He's the one who, uh, who, was, uh, uh, who could have uh, um, prevented this at the, at the last moment or, or in the final analysis. It's, he's the one, only one who really could have prevented this. So uh, to, to characterize it like that, Jack, I don't think is, is, is um, totally accurate. Okay. Now, um, there, an IFR versus VFR thing, <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know how cumbersome it is um, uh, to come out of the departure airport IFR. Um, it certainly would add some some time. Certainly would add some uh, some maneuvering uh, to what is otherwise a fairly um, um, easy flight in this airplane. Um, maybe they just didn't want to mess with it. Maybe that there would have been a, maybe there would have been a delay uh, coming off of uh, the departure airport. Um, why they excuse me? Why they didn't do a dog leg? Why they didn't uh, seek uh, a Bravo clearance to to go through there at say fifty five hundred or six thousand? Um, you know, all of these are are unknowns. All of these are mysteries, and you know, maybe the accident investigation will uncover some of this. Um, maybe it won't. Yeah. Uh, well, but the the punchline, you know, the punchline yeah. is, you know, the pilot's always the first on the scene of the accident, and uh, um, and sadly, you know, uh, that's the case here. Yeah. Listening to you guys talk about this and, and the airspace design issues reminds me of when I was learning how to fly uh, thousands of years ago, no, twenty, a little over twenty years ago, um, in the in the and I always characterize it as the San Francisco area, but in fact I was a little closer to San Jose. Um, when I was learning how to fly in the San Jose area, the pilot community was still kind of buzzing from um, – uh, they were pretty happy with the result of a redesign of what was then called the San Jose ARSA um, because the uh, the pilot community um, had uh, managed to get them to modify the new design of the ARSA to make it more VFR-friendly. 
And uh, the argument at the time was uh, that uh, that they designed these these pieces of airspace that are really only relevant to VFR pilots. I mean, I'm over probably oversimplifying a little bit, but but uh, that these pieces of airspace are mostly relevant to VFR pilots because VFR pilots are the ones that need to know where they are and to stay out of them and all that kind of stuff. Yet they're designed using using you know, mechanisms and concepts that they aren't trained on, like, you know, knowing where radials off of VORs are and things like that. I mean, not really, they're not really highly trained to know how to navigate by those kinds of things. And um, so the, the, uh, I'd, I'd argue that point. Yeah, bit. there's a lot of that in the private pilot syllabus. There's some, there's some, uh, but uh, anyways, you do the, not focus on it to the, to the, to the uh, myopic extent that you do in instrument training. Certainly. Yeah. But then, yeah, so uh, anyways, they uh, managed to get many of the borders, many of the boundaries of the uh, of the uh, San Jose Arsa con- uh, translated from being radials off of VORs, which is very common, to being relative to uh, visual references like interstate highways and things like that. And, uh, you know, and, and having flown in that area, it certainly made it, you know, I don't know, relatively easy, I guess, to uh, – and well, that's the- what makes me think that maybe, maybe the CFIT part isn't – IFR versus VFR, but uh, but I wonder how much of airspace design and the and the conflict, if you will, there is not an airline versus GA conflict, but an IFR versus VFR conflict. Well, in this accident, Jack, yeah. uh, this, this uh, turbo commander accident, and the two other sea fit uh, accidents that, that that I studied for this particular story, uh, all the pilots were instrument rated. Most of them were commercial. Uh, they all had thousands of hours. Uh, none of this was new or strange to them. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that makes it all the more baffling to me. One of them was uh, two senior pilots with the uh, Civil Air Patrol yeah. in a CAP-182. <laughs> really? Were, there, were all three of them flying um, VFR? All three of them were flying VFR. Uh, okay. And the my my third one was the uh, was the accident. There was a, uh, a a hawker, I believe, in eight hundred. It was the accident that killed uh, most of the band members for Reba McIntyre mm-hmm. uh, out in California in ninety one. Uh-huh. And that was an, uh-huh. that's an airspace related. Uh, that was an uh, airspace accident. related accident where the guy didn't want to wait for his clearance and departed to pick it up on his way out. Mm-hmm. And he'd already moved the airplane to avoid uh, a curfew at the airport where they originally landed. He'd m- removed the airplane from that point. Uh, they were late departing. Uh, there was a big rush to get out of there and on the way. Not going to wait on the clearance. Took off. There was some confusion. And this this pilot wasn't as familiar with the region as as I believe our folks were here in, in the Phoenix accident. Uh you know, he wasn't a regular there as much as the folks of the Turbo Commander were a regular at Mesa. Uh, but there was a little confusion about the altitude that he asked for and, and received uh, as he went out. And he was headed out to where he was going to pick up his clearance and ran into a mountain. Yeah. Again, a VMC night flight where, for whatever reason, in this case, time pressure... Uh, and, and, and in the urgency to get up and get going and not wait even more time for a clearance. And we're talking one thirty in the morning in the San Diego area. Uh, you know, you wouldn't think it would be that busy that time of night 
but they'd already had a flight plan expire because of how late they were. Uh, they'd been in the process of copying to the controller what the plan was supposed to be so he could re-enter it. Uh, it was as if the crew was only partially focused on flying the airplane. Uh, and that's a two-man cockpit, by the way. That's You, you don't fly the, the Hawker single pilot. Uh, and one of them completely missed the terrain issue. Uh, the Civil Air Patrol guys were senior officers with something in the neighborhood of almost 60,000 hours between them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they did a cruise climb coming out of North Las Vegas to stay out of airspace. And never. And it's a turbo 182, so density altitude shouldn't have been an issue uh, in terms of their ability to, to climb. But they set up a shallow cruise climb that never achieved a rate to, uh, to assure that they would clear terrain uh, to the west of Las Vegas. And in the end, they did not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, night, VMC, uh, they'd been in and out of that part. They'd done search and rescue in that part of the world. Uh, I would rate them as probably more familiar with the terrain than the average visitor to Vegas, like Jabbermay. Uh, certainly familiar enough with it to know that a 400 foot a minute climb rate, while it would keep you from violating the airspace that uh, they hadn't cleared through, wasn't going to be aggressive enough to get them over the terrain to the west. Yeah, yeah. And 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 by the way, for for any listener who's only done their flying on the eastern half of the United States, I mean, let, let's make sure everybody's clear here. Um, these are big mountains. They're really close by, and they are truly invisible at night. I mean, it's like the you know. Yeah, I'm not well, sure. There have been their share of accidents east of the Mississippi, uh, in mountains over there, Appalachian and the Blue Ridge over yeah, the. Yeah, no, to be sure. But I just, I, I just want to make you know, it's like people who haven't flown out there may not realize that there are big, really big mountains, really close by, and there's no development on them, which means they have no lights of any kind to give you any guidance, you know, any indication of their. Yeah, know. the FAA doesn't require. Uh, uh, recognition or clearance lights on the treetops on mountaintops. Yeah, that's right. So, anyways, that's right. Uh, I want to um, thank. Uh, I'm sorry, Jeb. Did you want to? No, 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 add no. Just, to this? just that you know, the whole CFIT thing is is a um, uh, certainly a tragedy, but it's also a very complicated issue. And uh, you know, I, 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 I say that in a you know, again from a, a macro standpoint, a thirty thousand foot standpoint. Uh, which you know, ironically is is one of the solutions, but um, um, especially night VFR, um, you, you just have to you know plan these things a little bit better. And and my the best solution I can come up with for for night VFR operations, um, whether it's uh, uh, relatively flat land or mountainous territory or a mix of the two is to buy and become familiar with um, an instrument chart, a low-altitude IFR chart for the region, and pay attention to the minimum altitudes and and in-route altitudes printed on that chart for for both for uh, um, uh, general airspace, uh, for, you know, larger areas, but also for the the airways uh, that you might be using. And... um, Especially if you're at night, especially if it's if it's VFR, um, use those those minimum altitudes as your minimum altitudes because those are designed and engineered and tested and and uh, uh, verified to 
be safe, to keep you out of the weeds, to keep you out of the antennas, to keep you out of the, out of the, the uh, cumulus granite. And uh, if you're going to be doing a lot of VFR night flying, um, you know, please, please, you know, keep some of this in mind. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's worth remembering this, too, uh, on hazy VMC days. Uh, I lost a friend in uh, a crash years ago, uh, cruising along, fat, dumb, and happy uh, at a comfortable VFR altitude under an overcast. And the, there's a, a, a ridge over in western Arkansas that's kind of east-west oriented. It's all green covered, and it rises fairly quickly. But there are no discerning marks on it. And looking at it from under a cloud layer, it just looks like you're still looking out across the horizon of the terrain. Clouds above and green below. Uh, he apparently realized he was about to hit terrain split second before they hit because of the attitude the airplane was found at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this can, this can happen to folks, too, day VMC under, uh, let's say, not ideal visibility conditions, but still legal VFR. Uh, and those little grids on the, on the uh, VFR uh, navigation charts, uh-huh. they, 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 they have altitude right. for the same reason. That'll get you through that grid without hitting anything if you stay at or above that number. Right. Because it's got a cushion built into it. So You know, I, I, I was about to move this conversation on, but now I'm going to extend it maybe. maybe. Um, yeah. When I was, uh, I, I, you know, I've been scanning all these uh, survey results that come in, and one passed by me the other day, and, and one of the things we ask people is what their ratings are. And I was scanning the ratings, and this guy, among his ratings, he called, he mentioned that he was night rated. And I thought, that that's odd. And then I looked lower, and I realized he's from Canada, um, where, as I understand it, a night, you're, you're not as a plain old PPSEL or whatever, you know, to uh, allowed to fly at night. It's an additional rating in Canada. Am I correct about that? Yeah, in yeah. Mexico too. You got to be instrument rated in Mexico to yeah. fly. Um, so that that brings up my question here: um, uh, Should we require a special sign-off? Are we too lax in the United States? Or do we not train up well enough to fly at night? No, no, no. Let's come back to these three CFIT accidents that were my case studies. Those were all instrument-rated pilots. Those were were all, you know, and I think Dave mentioned earlier in this conversation where, you know, they were all commercial pilots. They were all instrument-rated pilots. And they were all flying well-equipped, excuse me, well-equipped aircraft. Um, They had a brain fart. But that yeah, still doesn't suggest that they were sufficiently trained in VFR night, which could well be a completely different skill than than being an excellent IFR pilot. Well, this came up with when I, I, John Kennedy Jr. died in his Saratoga uh, yeah. a number of years ago. Jeb, we'll get to you in uh, a sec. Yeah. The, you know, the argument that maybe we shouldn't let private pilots fly at night without an additional rating. Uh, I think it's a matter of paying attention and practice. Okay. Jeb, go ahead. Yeah. Um, it's The training is there. I mean, uh, from day one, you're, you're taught, and don't run into nothing. Uh, you're taught to, to verify altitudes. You're taught to uh, plan your flight. You're, you, the, the training is there. Uh, the training necessary to, to avoid and minimize uh, CFIT-type accidents is, is available. It's... it's um, 
it might not be, you know, CFIT specific in that, um, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to hit a mountain kind of thing. But the, the, clearly the, the ideas and the concepts of make sure you have sufficient altitude to avoid terrain is there in your training from day one. Uh, I, I certainly don't believe we need any um, specific night rating uh, training in this country. Um, I, I, I'm not sure about Canada. I think if you have an instrument rating, um, then you don't need um, specific night training or a night endorsement. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I defer to our Canadian friends on, on that point. Uh, Mexico, I have no clue about. Other countries, I have no clue about. Yeah. Um, some countries simply prohibit night VFR. Well, uh, we do which, for sport pilots. Is, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure about that, Jack. Um, I, I will I will defer to you and, and well, you know, do some other you can, research. You, you're but you're I generally know, way I know, more informed than I am, so maybe I'm mistaken, well, I, but I thought we did. Here's, um, I think, like anything else associated with sport pilot, um, the... Um, the, the training curriculum is designed to get someone soloed and certificated to carry passengers in, the min, in a minimum amount of time. And once that occurs, then he or she can also get a, endorsements to operate at towered airports, uh, and I believe also at night. Uh, but I, 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 again, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's too early in the morning to go research. No, I understand. Part. And yeah. I wasn't sure yeah. myself, although a quick search yeah. Yeah. revealed this Something. page. This is from uh, EAA's sportpilot.org uh, Q&A uh -huh. area. Uh, the question is, can a sport pilot fly an SL, well, it says fly an SLA, L, SLSA air, air, aircraft equipped with lights at night? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. The answer is, um, and again, this is presumably, you know, EAA, an authoritative source speaking, a sport pilot cannot fly at night under any circumstance. In order to fly at night, the pilot must be at least private pilot with a current okay. FAA medical okay. well, certificate. That, um, that's, that's, that's the answer to that question. I, yeah. That kind of surprises me, but okay. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably not a, uh, I don't I won't say it's not a bad idea, but it's... Um, well, it's not inconsistent with what... Yeah, it's probably not a reasonable. It's probably not a an unreasonable uh, uh, restriction. Although there, I think there probably should be some mechanism short of earning the private certificate to remove that restriction. Okay, okay. I mean, I think it's not inconsistent with what you said. You suggested that private pilot um, are sufficiently trained to fly at night, and sport pilot we know is not com not trained right. as much, and right. that's the miss one of the missing now, pieces. Now you know anybody can make the argument. Well, you know, they're not sufficiently trained because they keep running into stuff at night. Well, um, okay, you're the fine. safety guy. What's what are the stats? Well, but we should my, move on. I, yeah. I well, I mean, I mean, Dave, you know, kind of summarized some of the. Uh, uh, the case studies on this topic and, and did did a very good job of it. Um, you, you say, well, um, you know, apparently we're not doing a very good job of training pilots because they keep running into things at night. And I think that's perhaps uh, a, a bit of a specious argument. I would I would counter to say that well, you know, we really don't even have a clue how many night operations in uh, occur near terrain or near obstacles. So just because we have you know X number of accidents doesn't mean that uh, it's a it's specific uh, it's an overly dangerous activity. Um, I would you know point out that you know there's a lot of night flights that occur uh, in VFR near terrain and obstacles that don't hit nothing. So how do you how do you say that that's a dangerous activity? Yeah. Um, but as far as um, you know night flying generally, it's it's interesting that we got on this topic. I was 
talking with some some friends over the last week or so, and uh, I had I had recently flown down to uh, Key West for for a weekend, and uh, left Hidden River uh, in in daylight late afternoon, um, sunset while we were in route, and landed at Key West at night, and someone said, um, you know, hey, you know, you're you're flew in Key West at night, and you know, wink wink nod nod. I'm like. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to do a follow up with this individual, but I was thinking, why is that odd? Why is that um, something that is is special per se? Uh, first of all, you know, between here and Key West, there's not a whole lot to run into if you're fifteen hundred feet above the ground or more. Uh, <laughs> there are a couple of towers that you want to make sure you. Well, there's there's that and there's that balloon. Yeah, there's that balloon off the keys that that is tethered and, and goes up to fourteen thousand feet, so that we can continue the uh, uh, the war on some people who use some drugs. But um, there's. Uh, um, no good reason not to uh, to be flying that route at night. Um, okay, there's there's a little bit of water involved, um, but you know the airplane doesn't know it's dark. The airplane doesn't know it's over water. So you know I typically you know pick a route that's um, fairly um, uh, how should I put this? That is certainly within gliding distance of land at all times. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that would be the marathon key hopscotch. Well, no, actually, there's a um, coming from this area. Uh, if you look at the charts and you look at the way the aid is is configured and the and the way the geography is, there's an um, an intersection um, down um, off the water. It's just west of. Uh, the Florida Peninsula that serves as a perfect little uh, turning point, literally, um, to go direct to and from Key West. It keeps you uh, fairly close to um, some of the islands there, so that if you know something quote does happen unquote, uh, you can turn and, and glide to land, or at least get closer to land than you might have otherwise been. It's it's to me it's far preferable than doing direct Key West uh, uh, oh, from Sarasota. Yeah. And, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and when I was when I was punching out of there um, at the end of the weekend, um, there was two or three flights that uh, happened to be you know left you know before me or after me or something like that that were going direct Sarasota. A couple of them were singles. One of them was a twin. Uh, okay, fine. You know, ha- have fun, guys. Uh, I just don't want to do that. It's not because I'm a, I'm a scared of something. It's just because I don't have to. Uh, it's, it's just an additional uh, concern, risk, whatever. I just don't want to pay, uh, pay for. Our yeah. usual route would be down to Everglades City uh-huh. and then kind of hang a 45 to the right. Right. And yeah. that takes and, you and straight I've, out. And, and the keys are a few miles off to your off your left wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're at 10,000, uh, starting across there, uh, you may not make it to dry land, but you'll be where you could, like or the guys we talked about in Alaska, where you should be able to wade ashore. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm when I fly that route, I'm at least you know seventy five, eighty five hundred, um, and I, the the if if there is exposure to uh, not being able to glide to land, it's only for a, a few a handful of minutes. Yeah, uh, on an hour fifteen flight, so. Uh, I don't. I don't stress about it. Uh, but I. I do like that route. It's. Uh, uh, it's convenient from a lot of standpoints, and it's basically the sort of thing that when I'm when I'm going down to Key West, um, cl- take off out of here, climb to my cruising altitude, sit there and, and play pinball with with stuff for you know thirty forty five minutes. When I hit that that uh, that intersection, that fix, 
um, most of the time I have to start letting down yeah. right then yeah. uh, to make it into Key West without you know, overshooting or without you know, popping your drums or anything like that. So, without uh, talking to Havana Approach. Well, we've had two, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, it, when we were headed down there a, a number of years ago, uh, we stopped in Sarasota to pick up a life raft because we were going to Cayman Islands uh, the next day. And we'd been given all kinds of advice about the safest and easiest ways to get to Key West. And, the, you know, the common advice was, well, this will keep you right over the Key Highway. There's a little one-mile gap from the mainland out to Marathon Key. Go down there, hop that one-mile gap, and then just follow the Key's Highway out. And we thought about that and said, wait a minute. Tomorrow we're going all the way to Grand right. Cayman, and I'm going right. to pucker up about Key West. Right. Now, let's break that cherry right here, right now. And uh, we dodged the freeze because we didn't want to wait the hour for the instrument flight plan to get into the right. system. Went down to Everglade City, 45 to the right, uh, and about seven miles out, the airplane picked up the damnedest vibration it ever had. <laughs> well, it turned you know, out to be my toes straining against the rudder pedals. I found right. that out when I took my toes off, and it created great laughter at Miami Center and, and Key West Approach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, so if this, I had a if yeah. I had an operational reason and I had a uh, a little bit more than just a couple of inflatable life vests, I wouldn't hesitate uh, to go direct Sarasota to Key West or vice versa. But I don't have a good operational reason, and I and I don't have that equipment. So yeah, and you don't have to. It adds maybe it, it, seven it, or eight minutes. To I was going to say that's exactly right, and. Um, uh, it's it's like you know okay I'm, I'm I've got a fifteen minute I've got a fifteen mile trip here, and I'm I'm running late, um, and this is a two lane road, and if I pass this person in front of me and increase my speed five miles an hour, I might save thirty seconds, right, uh, or I can just sit back and relax and 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 follow this guy and and uh, you know let him let him trip the radar uh, from the cop that's sitting around the corner and and let you know let him be the problem and not me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it, it's all we wrap up this relative. old sea fit thing with. Don't be time foolish. Okay, don't rush yourself. Right. If you got to wait twenty minutes for a clearance, and a clearance is going to ironclad guarantee you terrain clearance, twenty minutes is a is, is a small price to pay for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a smart it's a smart play, and uh, you know, again, we don't know what went through the minds of the of the the pilots involved with this uh, this turbo commander crash, um, but uh, we know what the outcome was, and, and we know. Um, how we could have prevented that, and if if we keep those kinds of things in mind when we're planning uh, similar flights, uh, we can perhaps stay out of the weeds. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That's pre- that's a pretty fascinating conversation. I'm glad we did it. Um, but we've used up almost all of our allotted time <laughs> in the process. Um, it's the first time we say, have. Is, is there a list? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, there's just a couple of things on the list that I don't want to push off till next time. So let's just kind of run through have, these quickly. I, I'm begging. It, yeah, go ahead, have, David. Have, oh, I say have at it, boss. Yeah, okay. Uh, first of all, thanks to uh, Bob Coflyer for uh, inviting us to talk about that subject. It was very interesting. And, yes, uh, thank and you. I thank him. I thank everybody who uh, who gives us suggestions on things to talk about. Uh, they are almost always good suggestions. 
Uh, real quickly here, and I'm begging you not to listen, and let's not go into the weeds on this one, but there was a little bit of new news on Light Squared and the whole uh, uh, GPS interference thing. Uh, was it David who brought our attention to this? I, I'm just, I know I'm going to regret this. David, could you summarize for us uh, what's going on with Light Squared? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I can dial this down, I think, to 90 seconds or less. All right, and uh, go. There was, Light Squared has two spectrums. They'd, they'd offered to give up the higher one temporarily and concentrate on the lower one. Uh, chests were run recently on that lower spectrum and found that even at lower power uh, and the lower spectrum, that their system still interfered with 75% of the GPS receivers subjected to the test. This got leaked to Bloomberg News. Uh, there'll be a link. Uh, you can take a look for yourself. Uh, the light squared folks got their shorts in a knot that the results were linked, were leaked. I'm sorry, uh, but the bad news is that there doesn't seem to be a way out of this that favors them, and that's good news for us in our GPS system. And I can leave it at that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that was less than 90 seconds. That's excellent. Um, just one little point of, of information here. I was hurt. What did I hear from? Oh, I heard from uh, Steve Tupper, um, who uh, called my attention to the fact that um, another very popular podcast, not an aviation podcast, a technology podcast called This Week in Tech, uh, recently touched on the subject of Light Squared and the whole thing. And uh, Steve's concern was that, or his curiosity, I guess, concern was whether or not the tech people would think that the light squared technology was pretty cool and it was going to give people better internet access in the boonies. And as a result, those pilots just ought to, you know, kind of give in. Um, but uh, in this particular incident, instance, the tech people uh, uh, sided with us or, or sided against light square. Uh, light squared. That's going to say, I, I don't think this is siding for pilots or against pilots or for or against light squared. I think it's siding with or against science. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as I characterized it to Steve, I thought that it was for and against, you know, it, it tech people are big G, GPS users as well. And, uh, and that's what I think kept it from us getting rolled over on this because it's a GPS issue, not an aviation issue. Right. Uh, if, it, if it were a strict aviation issue, let's say, um, um, light speed <clears throat> was going to interfere with the ILS frequencies, okay? Uh, maybe the, a glide slope or a DME or, you know, something like that. If, if their technology would, would interfere with that, then I think the outcome, uh, the, 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 the outcome to which we're trending would be a little bit different. Um, but in this instance, light speed would hammer... Light, light squared, light squared. GPS... For all users, I'm sorry, Light Squared would hammer GPS for all uh, users, not just aviation. And that in and of itself, and, and I think um, the, techies, the techie in me likes GPS and likes it just the way it is, irrespective of right. whether I happen to be using it in an airplane. True. Yep. So I think that's really the, the ultimate uh, uh, determining factor here. Yeah. Um. Yeah, clearly there's there's other uses than you know navigating to the nearest sushi bar, but you say that like uh, it's a bad thing. I I'm I'm say that like it's a great thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. But we also have you know this aviation necessity and just the you know it, it, in a lot of ways it's it's a matter of who got there first, and you know GPS did get there first. Uh, there's there's this installed base of devices. There's um all kinds of applications that are being uh, used, that, that, I'm sorry, that use GPS for not only safety and health critical applications, but just everyday 
uh, consumer uh, grade use, if you will, and to, to try to convince uh, the vast majority of these users that they need to upgrade their equipment at some unknown cost for some uh, company that just wants to try to make a buck is going to be a hard sell. And I would not want to be uh, on the uh, selling side of, of that thing, of that decision. So um, the way this is going to come out, and, and, and you know, here I am talking, we're, 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 Jack, I think it was you alluded to the, uh, the need or the desire of, uh, uh, from a, just a policy standpoint, to increase uh, and enhance uh, broadband access out in the boonies. Well, that's you know that cuts a lot of different ways, and I'm I'm certainly uh, interested in shall we say increasing broadband access from out in the boonies, uh, but given the alternatives, and there are alternatives to <clears throat> excuse me to light squared's um, um, technology, um, there those alternatives can be used uh, just as well and not hammer GPS in the process. Right. Well, and when this all started. The ground stations that are the source of the, of the interference problems here weren't in the plant. That's right. But Light Squared acquired this bandwidth through another acquisition and then expanded their plan with these quote-unquote supplemental stations on the ground in a satellite spectrum. Yeah. And, and the, the big mistake was the FCC even giving them a conditional permit. To do this, because yeah. this so has clearly been satellite band territory. It has been for decades. Uh, and if they want to develop a network that doesn't depend on the ground stations, that sticks with the parameters of the, of the satellite uh, frequency spectrum and the power requirements and, and the signal-to-noise ratio and all that stuff, that'd be well and good. But they wanted to morph satellite bandwidth into something for terrestrial stations, and it was never intended to have that in that bandwidth. So that... You know, all they got to do is move. Yeah. So much for 90 seconds. Although I was going to say, exactly. All right. Anyways, uh, uh, changing gears a little bit here. Um, So uh, former FAA administrator Jalen Helms passed away this past week. And uh, and while it's always fitting to uh, thank um, anyone who uh, both served our country and uh, aviation uh, in in this way, and I'm sure others. David, you tell us in in the notes here that uh, that he was a special case. Uh, tell us just yeah, a little bit about Jalen Helms. Jalen Helms was uh, uh, prior to becoming administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration under President Reagan, uh, top dog at Piper Aircraft. Uh, had been for quite a while. Uh, became president, CEO, then later named chairman. Then he moved on to the FAA. Uh, little did he know when he moved on to the FAA that uh, the FAA and the uh, uh, controllers union were going to wind up at the kind of loggerheads that came around in, uh, I believe it was 81. Mm-hmm. So it was that era. Huh? PATCO and the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization uh, called a strike uh, and President Reagan fired the controllers. And Mr. Helms was the guy at the top of the FAA when they had to start rebuilding the controller workforce, when they had to start working uh, uh, to handle commercial air traffic and business and GA traffic without the 11,000 controllers that were just fired. Uh, there were times when he was his name was uh, uh, synonymous with some epithets that you might use. <laughs> uh 
He was a smart guy, no-nonsense guy, uh, a GA guy, uh, and somehow or another managed to shepherd the FAA through what was probably one of the toughest periods in its history uh, to get it, it, it turned around and get the system functioning again. Uh, and when he left, uh, there were some cheers and some tears, uh, but he left the agency functional and, and, and functioning and in good hands with the next guy. So, uh, you know, we kind of remember him with mixed feelings, but, uh, you know, for, uh, for a uh, former combat pilot, former GA Piper executive, uh, he, he acquitted himself damn well. And we owe him a, a, a debt because he helped set the stage for the ATC staff that we've got today, and which is now starting to retire and needs to be replaced. So. Yeah. Our condolences to uh, his family and friends, and, uh, and uh, we thank him for his service. Uh, finally, the last item that I want to do uh, real quickly before we uh, before we run out of time here. Uh, actually, we've got a bunch of shout-outs as well. But uh, um, is uh, uh, so this is although we're going to record one more episode before Christmas. This may well be the last episode that people get a chance to hear before Christmas. And so uh, I just want to call attention. So so Jeb, you put the story on the list of uh, the <laughs> funky picture of uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a picture one around. I don't know if this is a new picture or an old picture, but it shows an F uh, F104 uh, aircraft. On, uh, on display outside some sort of facility um, where they've and, and, and the 104 is one of those fighter planes that has a very pointy kind of needle no, needle shaped mm-hmm. nose and they've got it uh, they've got Santa's sleigh speared by the nose of the F-104 yeah, I think that's actually the, the ship's pitot tube but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's an F-104 uh, that's relatively well preserved that apparently is serving as a gate sentry um at an airport near Maryland, in Maryland, uh, yeah. and I can find the, uh, uh, the identifier here. Um, uh, he's on the eastern shore of Maryland off of um, St. Michael's Road, and I, I presume this is some kind of a residential air park. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, the pictures are, are uh, really cute. There's uh, uh, literally a, a Santa's sleigh with presents and whatnot skewered. Uh, by the nose of this F-104. Um, it's like, we got, go ahead, yeah. One, one of the engine intakes has yeah. a reindeer sticking out of it. Yep. There's, an, there's an elf, uh, um, um, I won't say impale, that's the wrong word, but there's an elf that's, that's um, on the vertical stabilizer, and uh, uh, the whole thing is just very well done. Uh, these pictures have been floating around the Internet. I, after I saw this web page, um, uh, a week or so ago, um, started to get uh, uh, links to it from from other people, and um, some people have, have you know copied all the images and sent them as in the body of the email and all this kind of thing. But uh, uh, it, it's very well done, very cute, and um, yeah, uh, it's a great thing for the holidays. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, and I uh, want to just remind people that uh, as they've been doing it for many, many years, uh, if you have kids or the kid in you is uh, is interested, uh, NORAD will, of course, be tracking Santa again this year. The, uh, the the NORAD tracking Santa stuff on the Internet just gets more and more elaborate every single year. And uh, you can go to noradsanta.org, or you and your kids can, and uh, check out the latest with videos and, you know, live uh, uh, 3D image tracking of Santa's travel around the con- around the world and uh, uh, cool stuff. According to uh, 
according to NORAD Santa, as we speak, we are eight days, 15 hours, 32 minutes, and 33 seconds away from Santa starting his mission this year. <laughs> I, I'm kind of, you know, in, in the scheme of things, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Santa doesn't block his uh, in number uh, know, from really? the ASDI. You'd think, huh? Uh, I know. Because, yeah. you know... <laughs> Well, there's there's a certain element of secrecy and surprise to yeah, his like, his travels, and and I would certainly see a scenario where he could justify uh, hiding his his travel plans from all the little boys and girls with uh, uh, with internet access. So I, I, don't I don't know. It's 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 my understanding from ATC that there is a, uh, a a a tape delay built into the feed, so ah, that okay. he's never really exactly where you see he is. He's already moved on. That's, that, that's the security step that they take. At uncontrolled airspace in the virtual hangar, the pilots were chatting, but then heard a bang or a noise of some kind from behind the tool shelf. T'was a man dressed in red, a quite jolly old elf. He opened his pack, and he flashed them a look, and he rummaged around, and he pulled out a book. The pilots all hoped there was something for them. They begged, Santa, look in your pack once again. Did you bring me a gadget? An Avgas container? He said, no, you've been bad. I've brought just the disclaimer. But Santa Claus smiled as he read to them there his message of wisdom and safety and care. The UCAP members, those wise old flyers, are speaking their very own thoughts and desires. The folks whom they work with might not feel the same, and that is all right. No one is to blame. The stories they tell, and advice, while terrific, you take them as general and never specific. When you're in your plane and pilot in command, keep all of your training right there close at hand. Assess your own situation that day, and fly your own airplane just like my sleigh. And they heard him exclaim as he flew out of sight, But you knew that already, so have a good flight. <laughs> Shoutouts. we got about a half a dozen here. Let's see if we can kind of keep this terse because we're all running a little bit long here. Uh, David, Wichita, the air capital of the world, uh, got a little bit of uh, publicity recently. What, what, where were they featured? Well, uh, they were featured on the Aviators, yeah, uh, and uh, they did a nice uh, little job here. Had a, a, an old friend of mine from uh, the uh, Convention and Visitors Bureau uh, talking about the city, uh, showing some of the sites. He showed uh, my buddy's uh, hangar once, another buddy's hangar one steakhouse in some of the scenes. Uh, worth a click. And while we're talking about Wichita, shout out to uh, our old friend Jeff Turner. He's the CEO of Spirit Aerosystems, who was uh, named the uh, uh, 2011 recipient of the Wichita Aero Club Trophy last week. Uh, Jeff was a Boeing Wichita was the was the boss of Boeing Wichita when the whole thing got taken uh, by another company and then spun off as of Spirit. And he's a local boy, made good, really sharp, a lot of fun, good sense of humor, uh, pilot, GA pilot. And uh, has done quite a good job shepherding that company through uh, uh, growth and expansion, even in bad times. So congratulations to Jeff. Yeah. 
Um, good. That was good. You did two of them. Uh, let's see now. Uh, talk to uh, or uh, talk to one of our good friends, uh, Dave Shellbetter of Sun and Fun Radio, uh, this past week, and he has asked uh, us to uh, remind folks that uh, they are starting to gear up for uh, next spring's uh, Sun and Fun uh, fly-in, and particularly the radio station is starting to uh, get its gear together and start to get organized and replace things that were broken and upgrade things that uh, need upgrading uh, to continue to provide the uh, radio station service that they do. Um, Dave has asked me to call people's attention to the fact that there are sponsorship opportunities available. If you are interested uh, in uh, supporting the radio station's operations and getting some visibility to the Sun and Fun attendees, um, you can do that through Sun and Fun Radio for a very, very modest amount of money. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's a good cause and uh, good exposure, and, uh, um, and uh, they're just fun people to hang out with and, and be involved yeah. with. You can yeah. learn more about that at uh, sun-n-fun.org is the website. And uh, although I could give you the direct link, and we'll probably put it in the show notes, um, if you click the multimedia tab, you will then find Sun and Fun Radio. And you, Dave tells me there's more information there about sponsorship opportunities. So uh, looking forward to Sun and Fun, although it's just beginning to be wintry uh, for us. But we're looking forward to the end of winter. <laughs> and uh, while let's see if we're while we're doing two at a time here, um, I want to uh, give a shout out to our good buddy Mary Jones of EAA. Yeah. Yay! Uh, who has uh, uh, is just a, a a great lady and a good friend and a friend of the podcast and uh, a friend of the three of us uh, as we do our newspaper work um, each summer at uh, at. Uh, uh, Air Venture, and uh, she has decided to. She'd been hinting about this for some time now, um, and we thought she was going to full blown retire, but she's decided to semi retire, and so she's decided to cut back her workload. She's going to be working only about half time, uh, starting I, bl- I believe right away, um, and uh, spend more time uh, uh, with uh, real life and with her family and, and with that sort of thing, but also continue to provide her expertise and her her great uh, uh, personality to EAA and the EA pubs. She's been, you know. She's been what? She's been with David. You know her probably be, well, certainly better than I do. Um, she's been with the AA for quite some time, uh, like a couple dozen years, I believe. Right? Tw- tw- Twenty-eight. Yeah. Wow. wow. Twenty-eight. Um, I remember her first Oshkosh, and uh, we kind of got a kick out of her enthusiasm and zeal and. She was kind of a rarity among uh, the aviation journalists that worked there and knew with EAA. Uh, she was there when they were still based at Hales Corners down near Milwaukee. Oh, wow. Wow, that is a long time ago, yeah. Um, and and she somewhat surprisingly, unexpectedly found herself in charge of the publications group a couple of years ago. Um, I get the feeling that was never her career goal, but uh, uh, you know when they needed someone to fill in in that role, she she stepped up and did a great job of it for a couple yeah. of years. And uh, uh, but now has handed I, that on to some other folks. I don't know anyone at EAA whose name is not Poberesne that has put more of their life, more effort and enthusiasm into that organization yeah. than Mary Jones. Yeah. So uh, we wish Mary the best in this new uh, new phase of her life, and uh, we look forward to seeing her again uh, at Oshkosh this summer. And uh, um, you know, have fun, uh, Mary. you can look for her at Sebring. I believe she's yeah, planning on she, being down there. She does uh, indicate she's uh, planning to be at, at Sebring. I would also add, uh, you know, it's just a pleasure to work with and work for. Um, uh, she's uh, a professional to a fault. 
and um, we will. She will be missed. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, well, she'll still be around. Yeah, fortunately, uh, but, we won't uh, be missing her. Yeah, because she, yeah. uh, you know, and she says she's still going to play a big role at Air Venture. So, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, I, exactly. um, but we're glad she's going to take some time and kind of uh, enjoy life a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in another she's, way. You know? She's well definitely earned it. Yeah, well, she, it's well deserved, and we're all very jealous. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Let's see. Now we've been jumping all over this shout out list. What else have we got here? Uh, real got quick, one. shout out to Google. Uh, so Google has one of my things. Um, being a former San Francisco Bay Area person, um, is uh, the uh, the question of what's going to happen to Hangar One, NASA's uh, Hangar One at Moffett Field uh, in Mountain View, California, um, literally on uh, extended final to uh, runway three zero now three one at Palo Alto. I used to fly over this thing all the time. It's the old blimp hangar um, that's uh, at Moffett Field. And uh, it, obviously it hasn't been a blimp hangar in a long, long time, but it's been a landmark and a, and a, a bit of history. And for years there's been a tussle about what, what how, whether they're going to save it and if they were going to save it, who was going to pay for it. Um, and there's been a big fundraising thing going on. Well, Google the other day, and Google, like literally, Google's headquarters, world headquarters, is almost literally in the shadow of Hangar 1. I mean, it's like right there. And so for perhaps that reason and others, Google has offered to 100, according to this story, has offered to 100% fund the, the, the uh, restoration or the saving of Hangar 1. And, uh, and that's awesome. Um, the, the NASA yeah, is, of course, cool. considering the offer. <laughs> like, go figure, right? It's like, yeah, right. well, yeah, if someone would pay for it, you know, if you guys could raise the money, we'll save it. And then someone says, okay, I'll pay for it. And they go, mm, let me think about that. All right. I don't know. I'm being yeah. cynical. Uh, well, they, 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 they estimated cost on this. And, and, and I'm in Jack's camp on this. This is a landmark that deserves to be, deserves to be saved. Uh, so Larry Page Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt, they're the CEO, founder, and, and executive chairman of, uh, of Google, have offered through a company they control to pay $33 million to uh, restore the hangar. Uh, they would like to use up to two-thirds of the floor space uh, for their eight uh, business jets. And I had no idea Google was that deep into business aviation. I knew that they had some airplanes and used them, but wow. Uh Eight, that puts them up there in the upper uh, upper yeah. quintile of, of business jet operators. Anyway, I, I I'm rooting for it to come through. I think NASA would be passing on a uh, on, on a smart deal, uh, even if they only wanted to make the hangar use, you know, kind of temporary. Like say, give them the next ten years to use it, and and then turn it into something for the public. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, no, it's a good thing. Any other shout outs? Real quick, yeah. uh to um uh Jason E. H. I'm not sure how the how he intends that to be pronounced in from the forums, who uh earlier this week put a link rather lengthy post up in the forums uh regarding his um um well the title here is a day of firsts including yeah. an on field off-field landing of the week. And, yeah. Uh, we should talk uh, very, about this next week, but give us the yeah, short very, version. Very interesting. Uh, uh, Jason um, just took uh, possession of a uh, an air coupe, purchased the air coupe. It, by his own admission, probably didn't do some of the uh, um, pre-flight inspection and or checks that he might should have otherwise done. Took off uh, to head home with the airplane. 
uh, and discovered that he had a little bit of an engine issue oh, and ended up yeah. in, ended up putting it down uh, at a, on a runway uh, safely without any damage to the airplane um, and learned uh, a long, long list of, of lessons from this experience. And uh, we'll try to talk about this more, but uh, just a, a shout out to Jason for... Uh, uh, primarily for you know learning something from this experience and having the um, um, fortitude to post about it in detail uh, on the forum. So yes. uh, thank you very much, Jason, for sharing about with this, and and thank you very much for um, actually learning something and being able to to understand and regurgitate what you've learned. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's a very, very Absolutely. interesting story, and there's a bunch of lessons there, I think. Yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah but, there's, but some, we should, there, there's some really good stuff to take to heart. Let's save yeah. it for next time, and uh, yeah. we'll, give it, we'll give it a few minutes, and we'll talk about it, because there's a bunch of interesting things there. Uh, David, anything else? Just a real quick one. Our buddy Dave Shawbetter, again from Sun and Fun Radio, suggested that we ought to give a shout-out to, uh, to the Flying Home Mission uh, the Wings of Rescue, uh, Wings of Rescue Holiday Airlift out in LA starting this morning. Uh, group of volunteer pilots uh, and some folks that are saving dogs from euthanasia going to be flying about a hundred dogs out of the LA area to parts of the country where the demand for uh, a, a pets to adopt exceeds the supply. It's going to save a lot of dogs. Going to make a lot of people feel good. Going to make Christmas Day really happy for a lot of kids, or one of the one of the days of Hanukkah really happy for a lot of kids. So, way to go, folks! That what a great use of an airplane. And that's it for me. Hey, uh, time to stick a fork in this one for sure. Uh, uh, Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Quickly, Jeb, where can we find you on the internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, JeBurnside.com, AEA.net, AvWeb.com. Whoa, that was very good, huh? Uh, it was forum. Uh, it was survey feedback. Uh, they're getting tired of these uh, these uh, plugs at the end, but I'm doing them anyways. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where are you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, and and a couple other places where if I reveal the connection, they'll, they'll have to kill me. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot. And, and, and rightly so. <laughs> I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earle, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips and other audio bits that we use in the podcast. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need. By the way, one of the survey responses I saw a couple a couple of different times I saw people saying asking for only 10 or 15 dollars a year is just not enough it's worth way more people are telling me but anyways I'm going to say it doesn't need to be very much just 10 or 15 dollars over the span of a year is a big give to your heart's content (laughs) give to Uh, us so, yes. And so anyways, and don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. By the way, a number of different people in the survey said they like it when Dave says wiki, 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 wiki. Go figure. Wiki, 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 wiki. Other than that, David, what were you going to say? <laughs> First off. 
have a happy, safe holiday, however you celebrate it, whatever traditions you apply. And remember, the oldest pilot is Santa. That's a hint. Time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And I agree. Have a happy holidays. And uh, that's enough talking for now. Let's go flying. AMFFN. <laughs>